Welcome to episode 16 of Meanwhile, a podcast to improve your life. Today, Michael and I talk about the topic of emotions, that emotions are data, they are leaky, they are the building blocks of relationships, and are actually essential components to having successful teams, work outcomes, and lives. We talk about how to be more aware of our emotions and feelings, as well as how to more effectively intervene with them to get to more productive outcomes through techniques on emotion regulation. Let's dive in. Hello, Michael Terrell. This is Michael Melcher, your East Coast buddy. And today on Meanwhile, we're going to talk about emotional awareness and emotional regulation. And you recently had an episode pertaining to the above. Please share. Yes. Both of these things were up. I was leading an offsite recently, and it was the final hour of the offsite. We were doing this capstone activity. It's usually a really rich time where all these learnings uh, with this company sort of come together. And all these employees for this company, 45 people or so, had just finished this activity and we were, we were in a big circle and I was asking people, what were their takeaways? Any observations, any sense of how these concepts all click together? And this one guy over on the side of the room raises his hand and beckons me over to him. He's got his phone in his hand. And as I get close to him, he says, I've lost my voice. Can you read this? <laughs> Like I'm doing my best Godfather impersonation here. And I say, sure. So I take this, this dude's phone. I look down and he's typed out a note. And the note says, I didn't like this last activity. It felt <laughs> incremental and not like the capstone you said it was. We could have skipped. <laughs> so I'm not only reading this in my brain, I'm speaking this out loud into the room real time. And you could imagine as somebody who's really invested in this experience, my first internal reaction is, fuck you, dude. Yeah, <laughs> get him out. I'm, I'm angry. I'm contemptuous. Kind of shot him a sideways glance. And and everyone's uh, watching this, of course. And everyone's watching. <laughs> They're riveted. I'm in, front, I'm in front of 45 people. People love when this happens. Oh, exciting. they do. They're like, what is he going to do? Is he going to snap, right? <laughs> what emotions are surging through this man? And so I had this instant, this flash of hot anger. And I had enough wherewithal in the back of my brain to say, okay, there's been an activating event. I'm having a response. What response do I want to have? And what else is in here? This is all happening over the course of like three seconds. But I realize I also feel just sort of well, embarrassed. Well, you're a professional. <laughs> I am. I, I, I lift emotional weights for a living. And so I realized I'm also sort of embarrassed, and but also curious to know like what other people's experiences were. Was it all this way? And so I was able to, after two breaths, just say, well... That's one person's take. Were there any other experiences over the last hour or two? And I stayed fairly even keel and, and we moved on, but it was brutal. Yeah, the, it's, it's, it's not easy doing this. Uh, mm -hmm. We feel sad sometimes too. Our best laid work and people don't give us good feedback. Emotional awareness, knowing what you're feeling, and then emotional regulation, making decisions about how you're going to express uh, what you're feeling, if at all. And it's a really interesting question um, because emotions are data. Emotions tell us things. They tell us what's important, what's going on. Yeah, I often picture them as big flashing road signs sometimes. You know, if somebody's having a strong emotional reaction, it's like this in Vegas on the strip, some sign pointing to, to some topic saying, hey, this matters to Michael Melcher. This matters to this person. This is important. Pay attention. Right. 
However, uh, we live in a world where people are often not that aware of their emotions or mm -hmm. think they're things that should be ignored or that being a real professional slash man means that you're not supposed to um, express them. Yeah. And then there's another wrinkle, which is, um, is success uh, attained on the path of complete letting it all hang out? Um, if you do become aware and express your emotions, will that actually make you more successful? Um, or to put it another way, is being authentic consistent with getting what you want? Hence the idea of emotional regulation. Yeah. Um, so how do we make the choices about what to do with our emotions once we once we have them? Um, yeah. So that's what we're going to talk about. Lots of lots of juicy topics. Yeah. And as a side note, how do we talk about this usefully in a way that doesn't seem like central casting Mars Venus gendered bullshit? Um, because we also live in a world where expression and feelings are often described in a really gendered way where women are perceived as the ones who feel things and need to be heard and express themselves. And men are described as uh, being blocked or unable to access emotions and just want to solve problems. And like many stereotypes, there's truth in each of these. And yet this is something that affects all of us. Yeah, so we will notice our he-she biases as, as we go. And I want to put a, a central thesis out there for our conversation, which is we tend to not be very aware of our emotions um, as we go through life and work. And as such, we miss out on a really rich, important data set. And we ignore that data set, I think, at our own peril. You know, if we are not enough in touch with our own emotional experience, that's going to eventually block our ability to be in touch with the emotional experience other people are having. And it's going to get in the way of our ability to connect with and build trust with them, which ultimately gets in the way of us being able to execute and achieve the things we want to do in work and in life. So that's what I'm throwing out there. That's why it's important to talk about these things today. I will take that and I will raise it further and say that we live in a world where there are a lot of half zombie people sometimes the zombies are ourselves, who are mm. just shuffling through life, um, half aware, half expressive, half connecting, half collaborating, because there's this missing element that prevents people from having richer lives and accomplishing things that are important and having a lot more fun doing it. So yeah. we're, we're, <laughs> we're not just after productivity, we're for being happier and more fulfilled and, and truly... Um, sensate human beings yeah avoiding small, zombie land a small task for today but we're gonna <laughs> we will it. nail it in 20 minutes or less so i, I see it as, as two pieces right one is this emotional awareness piece of our conversation the second is how do we regulate those emotions you want to dive into number one first how do we be sure. more aware of what we're actually feeling okay so what we're basically talking about is that we have feelings uh we're often not aware of them or we mislabel them or we're half aware of them so we might think i feel sad but maybe underneath it is, I feel afraid, or I feel judged, but underneath that is, I'm really angry. Or yeah. we shut them off, or we immediately move into action to solve a problem, to get rid of whatever we've, we felt. Um, or alternately, we do feel them, and then we act them out and go nuts on everybody. So the theory <laughs> is that if we block our emotions, they are going to continue running us. They will come out in some way. Um, so that instead of this being an emotion that I have, it's an emotion that has me. That's yeah. why we want to become aware of these things. Yeah. I often talk to them 
about them as being leaky. You know, they sort of leak out of us even if, when we think we're we're not uh, showing our cards. Sure. A good example of this uh, in our line of work is uh, doing a presentation or a workshop in front of a group. And inevitably, there will be three or four people, usually men, who sit with arms folded and kind of a squint and just like staring at you <laughs> and not I being love open. That moment. <laughs> and they may believe they're actually being just detached and neutral, but they are radiating contempt and discomfort for mm-hmm. everything that's going on in the room. And everybody yeah. knows it. And yeah. it's hard to even sit next to somebody like that if you're trying to get involved in something. What you're talking about is this idea that's sometimes called emotional contagion. So people who are feeling negative emotions, it tends to leak out into others. And the same thing happens with positive emotions as as well. Um, they can also have a big impact on people. For example, one of my first jobs was in a consulting firm, and I had my review, and this big grown-up manager, who was probably 32 at the time, sat down and said, Michael, you have a lot of positive influence um, with the team and with the client. At the time, we were doing this thing in Mexico City. And so when you're excited about something, other people really get excited and they want to be part of it and they like working together. And I thought, awesome. And they said, and it can go the other way too. <laughs> so when you're, dun, dun, dun. when you're not into something or you're kind of down or you think it's stupid or you don't like what you're being told to do, everyone knows that as well. And it has an impact on them. So your direction of growth should be to become more aware of it and try to harness the good. And honestly, that was like a huge awakening for me because I had thought that I was either positive or neutral. I would either be Mm. cheerful or I would have no impact. But in fact, I had a contagion either way. And so my goal after that was, okay, how can I be more aware of the negative and, and bring out more of the positive? So there's the emotion contagion element. There's also the... Like you were just saying, you you thought you were feeling either positive or neutral, but were sort of unaware of this more negative emotion set that you actually were experiencing and was trickling out. And so I want to give you a few tips for how to actually get in touch with the answer to the question, what am I feeling? What am I actually feeling in the moment? And there's a, a few ways to go about this. Uh, one of the, the, the challenges for us to really be aware of our emotional state as we go is we actually have a fairly limited emotional vocabulary. We, if you ask, you know, in, in American English, if you ask somebody, hey, how's it going or how are you doing in the colloquial sense, you know, people's emotional vocabulary or response to that question is fairly limited, right? Yeah, it's, and it's also a bit of a trick question. It is right. a bit of a trick question, <laughs> right? It's, they're not, we're not often saying, hey, how are you really feeling right now? But the dilemma is our, our habituated way of responding to the trick question version actually does trickle down into the situation where somebody really is asking us how we're feeling. So we have a, a limited vocabulary. We're, we're often feeling good or fine or busy or tired or great. You know, most or people that I pretty, ask... Pretty, pretty, pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. Pretty, 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 pretty good. <laughs> is that your is that your way of responding to that, Michael? I've never heard it that way. That's no, that's my um, Larry David imitation from Kirby Enthusiasm. Uh, pretty, pretty, pretty good. I'll continue. 
Yeah, so you've got that option <laughs> or the eight other words that people typically use. And the reality is, you know, if you just Google, I encourage anybody to do this now, just go Google a feelings list or a feelings chart. You know, there are hundreds of potential words to actually encode our emotional experience that far exceed our eight to 10 go-tos. Uh, and so one of the exercises I'll often do with somebody is I'll actually take out one of these charts and put it on the, the table in front of them and just say, in the last two weeks, Circle any of these words that you can remember feeling. I just, I just did the Google search. Did you find something uh, good? You go to image search, then you can find a, something very Oh, that would be too complete. disturbing. I just want the text. Ah. Uh, amazed, free, reliable, lucky, fortunate, impulsive, free, content. This is the positive list. Let's see if it goes. Oh, okay. Lousy, dissatisfied, diminished, perplexed, vulnerable, pathetic, in a stew. Okay, Ooh. that's my new favorite. I'm going to use that. <laughs> I'm in a stew. <laughs> I'm, I'm in a stew. Salty. Be beef stew? <laughs> <laughs> boiling. A royal, I'm at a roiling boil. Okay, but back to you. <laughs> many, many words, many options. As you can tell, Michael Melcher is totally into it. And I'll put this, this chart out in front of somebody and just say, circle any of these that you can remember feeling in the last couple of weeks. And I'll have people go through there. And just go through this experience. And the cool thing is most of these charts are, as you were just reading, right, are arranged by theme. So, you know, happy theme, caring type words, uh, shame words, sadness words. And the cool thing is when people are done with this exercise, not only have they expanded their emotional vocabulary, at least uh, for the moment, they also get to start to see some of their emotional patterns. What feelings am I actually, do I tend to be more in touch with? Where are their big gaps? Like I haven't circled anything in the anger column. Is that because I haven't felt anger or because there's something in me that doesn't want to feel anger? So by the so, way, <laughs> I just yeah. thought for all of our listeners who are in workplaces with teams, uh, this could be a really good icebreaker for your next team meeting if you want to jazz it up a little. Um, go online, find one of these lists, and then have people circle a few and then just share that at the beginning. And it'll be a much quicker way to get into a real conversation than um, chatting about your weekend. So just a little side tip there. Yeah, absolutely. So Miguel, let me ask you a question. Fire away. So one, the first approach is to get more nuance and elaboration and, and cleverness in describing our feelings so we're not just stuck in a handful of words that are pretty meaningless. And I totally see how um, this would help us because it allows us to pinpoint things that might not be that clear. However, I know there's another school of thinking about feeling which states that there is a much smaller number of true emotions and that many of these other things are sort of the higher layers or almost the masks for underlying things. And for mm. example, I've seen one list that the five core feelings are anger, sadness, fear, disgust, and delight. Um, one of those is, is positive. Um, <laughs> so I would be curious what you think about, one, is that true? And number two, the idea that what we think is our feeling might not actually be it and maybe we need to dig a bit deeper to find out what the real thing is. Yeah. So I I certainly agree with the premise that there are there are core patterns to our feelings and that oftentimes the feeling we most uh, want to present with isn't actually the at the core of what we're probably most experiencing, right? Like I'm like uh, the very common way this sounds is like I'm a little frustrated with X when what I might actually be feeling is uh, I'm angry or I'm afraid that I'm gonna lose my job, right? There could be these core emotions behind the, the expression we actually choose. Uh, 
you know, frustration in particular is sort of a, is usually an indicator that somebody's kind of skimming along the surface of something sort of angry and can be unpacked more. I would add when someone says, I'm surprised, that's mm. another skimming the surface kind of word. Totally. I'm curious to know. I'm surprised right? that uh, she didn't remember my birthday. Yeah. Yeah, so there's I I totally am with it conceptually uh, that there are there are things that are much more core uh, buried underneath the way we may first answer that question. The, as far as the the five core ones you just shared, you know, I've seen different research over the years. I feel fairly agnostic about it. Uh, actually, no, I don't feel agnostic. I feel skeptical. Uh, about those particular five, um, just because, as you said, you know the the one positive one is delight, and uh, it's just it's easy for me to quickly think about positive feelings that don't quite aren't quite encapsulated by delight to me. So I don't want to get into an academic argument about it. But for instance, is delight delight could apply to um, thrilled or overjoyed or ecstatic. I could see those being sort of in the delight column. But if I'm thinking about um, compassionate or sympathetic or um, warmly toward. I don't know that those are encompassed by delight in the same way. So anyways, I could nitpick through that, but that's, okay. that's my reaction. Cool. So you had another comment on all this. Yeah, and the last comment I, I had on this, you know, the feelings list version of this is not only is it a cool exercise to put down in front of yourself or in front of your team and do sort of the analysis of what you've been feeling, it can also be a great thing to keep on hand when somebody asks you. So in, in some of the coaching that I do, we'll actually say, we'll say, well, how are you feeling? And people will either not know, be like, well, what am I feeling? Or they'll sense themselves going to a default, like, good. I'm like, well, are you really good? And then I'll actually have them pull out this feeling chart and spend a minute looking at it to help them identify the word that most closely encompasses what their current emotional experience is. Okay. So I've got plenty of CEOs and, and other startup founders who have these things taped up next to their desks, and it's a, a feelings revolution. You're, I'm, yeah, the revolution needs to happen, particularly where you live. Um, yeah. So let's jump to a related topic, which is yeah. the body. Um, listeners, you may be aware that in our field, this idea of body-oriented coaching is kind of big. It has been for maybe 10, 15 years, and they call it somatic coaching. And the idea is that your body holds information. It holds patterns. There's information to be found within the body, and that you can't actually change your life in a good way unless you somehow attend to your body um, and probably try to use it and, and change it. And so this is talked about a lot, though, where they use a somatic. So if anyone says somatic coaching, that's really what they're talking about. It involves movement, breathing, awareness, all this stuff. And to be upfront, I am not trained in any somatic method. I'm in some ways a little bit skeptical of it. And yet I think it's kind of a real thing. I was working with this guy who's a coach who would ask me at various times what I was feeling and then where it was in my body that was feeling it. Hmm. And it was really very difficult for me to, to answer this question. At most, I would have this vague discomfort in my chest, but that's about it. Um, right. You know, it's not something that comes easy to me. But oddly, I feel like I can see it really clearly in other people. So if I'm talking to somebody and they have this kind of permanent too wide smile, I wonder what's going on. I know somebody who props her head up with her hand during meetings as if her head is so heavy that it's about to fall down and 
make her drop to the ground. People who walked in with scrunched shoulders, um, people who were constantly like leaning forward, you know, and radiating energy. I feel like there's something going on there, so I can see it in other people, but not in myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, one reason why I think there's something here is that I have read some of the research on facial expressions. And what this research shows is that your muscles in your face can determine what your feelings are, not just the other way around. So we think, okay, I'm happy, so I smile. Or I'm sad, so I cry and move my faces. But in Mm -hmm. fact, if you manipulate your facial muscles a particular way, you will feel an emotion. So here's a try this at home thing we could do right now. I'm going to try right now, yeah. Let's do it all together. Okay, so I want you to frown. Like where you kind of compressed your um, eyebrows and... Okay, now frown and purse your lips at the same time really Ooh, tightly. Nice. I feel like a baby. Okay, so Michael T., how do you feel? I feel I, angry, frustrated. Yeah, I, I felt Irked. terrible when I tried this in practice. Um, so this is one of the expressions of like being hurt or upset. And the thing is, is that like I'm kind of quivering now from it. If you do this, you will actually make yourself angry or upset. Mm. Now try smiling like really widely. I'm smiling. Okay, now keep the smile and squint your eyes. Hmm, that's strange. Yeah, um, kind of try to widen them. So the reason to squint your eyes is that a real smile, as opposed to just a um, newscaster smile, you you crease the corners of your eyes, and that's how we know. So if you hmm. if you do this, you will in fact have a different feeling. And it seems like you know. The secret 101, but if you smile more, if you deliberately put your face into that expression, you're going to raise your spirits. Mm -hmm. And so I am very curious about how we habitually inhabit and hold our body and then what impact that has on on our feelings. And in kind of doing further research about, okay, how can we use this information to unlock things? Yeah. Well, it reminds me of a quote actually that I heard from Tony Robbins once. Risky to bring him up on the podcast. <laughs> you know, he's, he's out there. He's out there. He does he's, stuff. He does some useful stuff. He does some useful stuff. He does other crazy firewalking, send people to the hospital stuff. Uh, but one of the things that he said that I actually have benefited from and relates to this is that motion creates emotion. And... What that means essentially for him is like the idea of like, can I start to activate my body in some sort of intentional way to shift my emotional experience? So if I catch myself holding my shoulders tight and with a furrowed brow, could I not actually, you know, go to the bathroom and do a few jumping jacks with a smile on my face for 60 seconds? And is there a shift in my emotional experience? So I found that to be very true for me and other clients when I'm preparing for a workshop or a speech. Or I've just had somebody raise their hand and say, oh, this is a, a stupid activity. <laughs> like, just to remember that I can hold myself a certain way, open my chest up, and it, and it actually does help me uh, channel into a, a separate emotional experience. So, well, we're, we're being consistent here because in our episode on focus, where you introduce the Pomodoro method, every 25 minutes, you're supposed to take a five-minute break. And we made right. the point that the five-minute break, if you just spend it looking on Facebook or CNN.com is not going to be that powerful. But if you right. somehow move your body and do something with it, you're going to open up a lot more energy um, than you might have thought. So yeah. um, on that thing where you talked about uh, being aware of your body when you prepare for high six things and doing things that kind of move it. Yeah. So when I'm going to do a workshop or a speech, um, 
and I'm nervous. And I've done thousands of speeches in my life. I used to do it in high school. Stud. Um, yeah, but it, thank you. I, I, quite, I was California State Champion for extemporaneous speaking. Thank you very oh, much. Oh, wow. Do you know, I did uh, extemporaneous speaking too. Were you Washington State Champion? Yeah, I went to, I, I think I, no, I don't know if I was State no, Champion. Sounds no, like, I went to State, I think, but then I, I think, think I got trounced by the Michael Melcher equivalents of the Yeah, world. I think going to State is not the same as going to State. But <laughs> no, I'm should, glad you I shouldn't be bragging, huh? Glad you had this for it. Anyway, um, Notwithstanding that experience, I still get nervous. Um, it's a kind of, I think, creative anxiety I have, but I got it. Sure. So sometimes what I'll do is I will s- practice by singing my delivery using uh, well-known songs or show tunes and kind oh, of yeah? making up lyrics. Nice. Like, it's time to do our podcast that I'm doing with Michael Terrell via <laughs> internet, and it'll be great. Just thinking about our podcast makes your dream of all the fame and wealth that will come of our way as soon as we get more listeners. Yeah, so it kind of works. And I think the reason is that it's not too serious. It kind of engages all parts of my brain. And it's yeah. not even that I'm doing exactly what I'm going to say, but I come somehow loosen myself up. I put myself yeah. into this better energy state. So that kind yeah. of works for me. What I'm digging about this theme is it's sort of straddling our, our two-part agenda here. It's There's a piece about what is our physiology and how can we use that as an indicator for what we're feeling? You know, can I notice what my posture is, what my face is doing? Can I notice what, how fast my heart's beating, whether my palms are sweaty as an indicator of what might I be feeling, the emotional awareness piece of it. But now we're also talking about ways to intervene with our physiology to actually help us emotionally regulate and to shift our experience. So emotional regulation, step one is be aware of what you're feeling because you can't regulate it if you're not aware of it. And people who really lose it or go haywire, um, it's often because they're not really aware of what's creeping up on them. Right. Second is have some practice for grounding yourself or calming yourself. And the most fundamental one is breathing breathing slows you down, it actually does give you the oxygen we need and it can lower your heartbeat and buy you a little bit of time. Yeah. You may also think about what's going on with the other person and what's going on in the room and what is really my role here. So you were in this room of 45 people and they were there for a purpose and then you got for a second really hooked on what this guy was doing to you. But am I here in order to have it out with this one guy or am I here for a different purpose? And I think totally. it was to create an experience for everybody, which would not have been served by by hashing out with him. And right. then you make a choice um, about how you want to do it. And I think this is where we really get to the nuts and bolts of emotional regulation, because in the end, it's what choice do I want to make? Um, what's really going right. to serve me? What is my actual goal here? Sometimes that might be served by really saying what's on your mind, and sometimes you might have to kind of swallow it and go down a different path. Yeah. And you're in, this is a nuanced point, I think, because just to even entertain the idea that we have choice is really what it's all about. You know, I, I work with a client on emotion regulation right now, and his experience is that he has no choice. It happens to him, right? People who struggle to have successful emotional interactions often feel gripped by the emotions. And so you, as you were talking about the, the notion of choice, it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes that I think really encapsulates this idea of emotion regulation. And it's by Viktor Frankl. Uh, People may know him as the author of a a book called Man's Search for Meaning. He was an Austrian psychologist and a Holocaust survivor. So lived through some very emotionally 
trying experiences. And he said, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. Again, choose. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. So for me, that really encapsulates this notion of of emotion regulation. It's not just stimulus, then react, where there's no space. It's like, can I start to cultivate? There's a stimulus, there's a space of choicefulness, and then there's a response. Easy to say, but but often difficult to do, but that's what we're talking about. Right, so how do we create space for ourselves? How do we give ourselves that pause? Yeah, Um, well, and you touched on breathing, and, breathing. Touched, and you touched on, re, can I remember what my goal or intent is? Mm-hmm. Another right. thing you could try, actually, is active listening, where you just mm-hmm. repeat what you just said, um, because that will slow you down. All right, so it sounds like uh, you felt this was not a useful activity and that you wish we had done something else. Yeah. And even by saying it, you're buying yourself time, you're calming it down, you're actually lowering the emotional load between the two people. So that's one right. thing. Another approach is what we talked about earlier, just moving. So if you had the option of moving to another part of the room, of taking a step, of looking down and then looking up, of if you're sitting in your office on the phone, standing up, if you're standing, sitting down, I think those also can sort of shake off that that moment. Um, mm-hmm. We're the only ones who think we have to respond to things immediately. Um, oftentimes we can just pause, and there's a lot of power in being able to pause. And then I think a final thing that is not so much in the moment, but it is predicting what might happen in a particular interaction. So I would be so bold as to say that most of the difficult conversations and difficult relationships we have are predictable. So we can actually Mm -hmm. predict going in to talk to somebody or doing something that we may be triggered or the person might be difficult or it might be Mm -hmm. messy. And if we think ahead of time, okay, what do I think based on my experience this person is gonna say how do I think I'm going to feel or react? Um, what are my choices before I do that? That makes a huge difference. And and this is also borne out by research. For instance, um, they've done studies of how people deal with pain and, and recovery. So if you have a hip or knee operation, the recovery is hard and it's painful. But what you have to do is start using your knee again fairly quickly. Um, otherwise, it will ossify and just get really bad. And so they studied which people were successful in making progress and which ones were not. Mm. And the ones who were successful were the the ones that forecasted what they were going to do. So like the guy in London would say, all right, I'm going to, all righty, I'm (laughs) going to walk down to the mailbox, the post box. And I don't know why I'm doing it this way. And, you know, (laughs) at about halfway, it's going to hurt a lot. So I'm going to pause and I'll rest. And then I'm going to keep walking. And even though it'll hurt, I'm going to hit the mailbox and get a letter. And then come yep. back. Whereas people who would just say, okay, better go check the mail, would be overwhelmed by pain. And so there's something to be said about before you have any kind of difficult interaction, just predict what do I think is going to happen and what's going to come from, come up for me and then what choices do I want to make yeah. um, at that moment. Yeah. Use that technique with clients constantly and it makes a huge difference. So there's this method from cognitive behavioral therapy called the ABC method. And it's an acronym. It stands for A, activating event, B, the belief or thought I have about that event, and C, the consequence, which is an emotional and behavioral consequence. So what's an example? Well, let's look at a scenario in which I get out of a relationship. So A, activating event. I would describe that as my partner, Tess, ended our relationship. That's it. 
as opposed be, to as opposed to the way I might be tempted to say it is my partner Tess ended a relationship because she's selfish and self-centered and wants to prioritize her own goals and dreams and never really cared about me in the And it's totally place. blind to your charms which are And is blind manifest. to my charms, you know, she's just overlooking me as she always does, right? As opposed to describing it in the more Got you know, with the more color. Because that other stuff I was just giving you is the B in the ABCs, the belief or the thought. What are the thoughts I'm having about the event? The event is that Tess broke up with me. You know, it's she's inconsiderate. She never sees what I the value I bring to the relationship. Everyone always breaks up with me eventually. And, you know, I'll never be in a long term thing. No one will ever really love me. I can't live without her. It's all this I'm crapola, sad. you know, <laughs> we've got going on in our inner story. So it's the But I'll have more time for work. Yeah, exactly. But at least I'll have more time for work. And, you know, I didn't really like her anyways. Yeah. And so that's B. And go ahead and just, you can write that out. And then C is what's the consequence. So based on this thought or this belief that I have about it, the way I'm telling the story, what am I, what am I feeling? You know, I'm feeling uh, disconnected and sad. Almost, you know, I'm going through a set of a feeling of depression about it. I'm, uh, I'm and I'm angry, right? I'm I'm not only angry, I am indignant maybe at how could she do that, right? Maybe these are the feelings I'm feeling not only in the moment but over the course of days. I'm just grinding my teeth. Also productive. Uh, alone, paralyzed, fatigued, vulnerable, empty, despairing, totally. frustrated, totally. distressed, woeful. I'm, I'm I'm looking up the list from the interweb there. Got it. <laughs> in Got a it. stew. I was like, wow, that was just a lot of lot of options there, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so, so what is what does this do to you if you put it in this ABC format? Well, so there's an intervention that happens here, uh, which is actually a, a D, continuing our ABC method here. A D is to dispute with okay. evidence. So and where the intervention happens is on the B column. So yeah. the the beliefs. How can I go through and make it not necessarily tell myself a sunny story that I'm actually that I feel happy per se, but a, a more accurate story. You know, remove things. I'm going to dispute the fact that I'm unlovable. Or I'm going to dispute the fact that she's totally inconsiderate and never valued me anyways. Mm-hmm. I'm going to dispute the fact that, you know, this is what I wanted for sure because I never really loved her. Yeah. Right. And I'm just going to make my story more accurate. And what typically happens for people is it doesn't eliminate the negative emotional state, but it tends to eliminate certain feelings and downregulate or, or turn down the volume on some of the other ones. So instead of just profoundly despairing, I might just feel sad. Right. Because you're um, breaking you're breaking the loop. And you're what breaking I, the loop. What I like about this is that it allows us to you, even though we're talking about emotions, it allows us to use our logical faculties. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could say. Uh, like the belief that you know no one will ever love me. Well, I could equal, equally argue that many people have loved me, and there are a lot of other fish in the sea. Well, and, and what I like about this is it ties directly to the Viktor Frankl quote, which is it forces us to create the space between stimulus and response. The stimulus is column A, the response is column C. The space in between is column B. Because for most of us, when we walk around at life, we conflate, we say, you know, column A and B are the same thing. The activating event and the story we tell are, are yeah, totally matched. We have a together. big tangled web yeah. 
of yeah. stuff that we think so is one thing, but it's actually all separate. Yeah. And I like the point that you make that many of the of the feelings we have, they're not just in the moment. It's not just the moment you were dealing with the jerky guy at your offsite. These are actually stories and narratives that we carry around with us for hours or days or, or years at a time. And we do have the ability to jump in between the the event and the response and do something more useful. Um, yeah. and, and regulate ourselves, not just to be uh, socially appropriate, but to make ourselves happier. So yeah. let's, um, let's give a homework assignment to our listeners. Let's build some emotional muscles. I've got one. Go for it. So I recommend that people download an app. It's called Mood Meter. And it's sort of like the, our feeling list concept, except designed for the digital age. And you can configure this app to send you reminders to take feelings inventory for you over time. It breaks feelings down into a bunch of different words, much like we've talked about. And it's a way to, for you to build real time uh, a database of your emotional landscape. And so I encourage people to do that. Just try it for a week or two weeks and just see what sort of patterns they notice, both in getting in touch with feelings they didn't know they had. Wow. What's that? What's there? How might that be useful data for me to be more aware of? And two, to see what what is are there any patterns over time and what you might learn about yourself? Are there emotions you're not as fully in touch with? And if so, hmm, what might I be missing out on there? I think this um, is great because it goes along with what we were talking before about filters and narratives. Like we yeah. have these certain narratives, like I'm a cheerful person or I'm a depressed person or right. I'm continually frustrated or I'm whatever. But a lot gets filtered out of that. Um, totally. And so what the mood meter does is it makes you acknowledge these pieces of data that we're feeling, pinpoint them, and not just let them get flushed out with a general um, narrative. My homework assignment is to identify a venting partner. Mm. Um, there are a lot of frustrations in work and life. And as Michael said, we we can be leaky. We can just sort of express these things without necessarily intending to. And I think it's good to ask one or two of your friends or acquaintances to be your partner in venting. Somebody you can just say, hey, I'd like to call you up from time to time, and I just want to complain about things and and also give instructions. And so what I'd like you to do is tell me, you're totally right about everything. Or you could say, mm-hmm. I'm going to call you up, and I'm going to talk about my frustrations, and I want you to say, you're an amazing, positive person. You're going to triumph. Or I'm going to call you up and vent about things. And what I want you to say is like, get your act together, youngster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. Pull it together. Stop complaining. These are first world problems. Like whatever's going to work for you. So the idea is identify somebody that you can honestly vent with, um, who's not going to judge you, who's going to be open to it. And we're actually going to signal that you're just venting. You're not asking for any particular advice. And then two, tell them, what you want them to do. Don't expect them to be a mind reader. They're not going to be a mind reader. Check that out and see how that works for you. All right. All right. Another one in the books. Another one in the books. Till next time. Again soon. Bye.